Welcome, and thank you for tuning into the Monroe College True Crime Blind Justice Podcast. The crisis of crime and mental health in our communities impacts all of us. Hear from experts on the front lines in law enforcement, law, and human services about the criminal justice and human response to crime, substance abuse, and mental illness. Hi, and welcome to the Monroe College School of Criminal and Social Justice True Crime Podcast, Episode 6, Domestic Violence, Intimate Partner Violence, Halting the Cycle of Abuse in Our Communities. I am your moderator today. I am Ann Paul. I am an adjunct professor at Monroe College School of Criminal and Social Justice. And I have had a 50, 5-0, 50-year career in domestic violence victim advocacy. Welcome. We have wonderful panelists. I'll introduce them in a moment. But let me just make a few remarks about domestic violence being violence between people in personal relationships, known as family violence, including intimate partner violence between lovers married people, people who are divorced, dating people. It is a plethora of harms. It can include child abuse and neglect, abuse of elders, abuse of animals, and it is ancient scripture, classic drama, features domestic violence. The great abolitionist Frederick Douglass addressed domestic violence as wife torture, back in the 1850s. And then around the year 1970, there was a great surge of activity in the women's liberation movement and great focus on statistics that the United States had collected for many, many years, the gold standard in criminal justice information via the FBI, Federal Bureau of Information. And that important crime data helped us focus on the fact that domestic violence is and was the leading context of the homicide of women. U.S. Surgeon General Everett Koop in the early 80s identified domestic violence as the leading cause of injury to women greater than muggings, rape, and car accidents combined. Domestic violence harms women. So in these 50 years, great progress. New legislation is since 1970 in every state in the union. Programming, our federal resources tell us, in every county in this country, domestic violence programming and resources. And shelter and better access to protection and housing programs and respect and combating stigma combating shame, it has been 50 years of progress in many areas. And yet, the statistics have remained consistent and deadly. Domestic violence remains the leading context of the homicide of women, the leading context of the injury of women, and the underlying cause of adverse birth outcomes outcomes harming mothers and newborn children. So our reality is one where there is a lot of hope, a lot of challenges, 
there are new trends in combating domestic violence, in addressing safety for women. There have been great social movements, the Me Too movement, posing and exposing sexual assault. And since the murder of George Floyd and the summer of 2020, a great movement worldwide and in this country in anti-racism. So there are many intersections for us to explore today. And our two panelists are remarkable contributors, remarkable women, remarkable leaders in New York City and in the Bronx. And together, we have worked and created shared vision. We'll uh, explore that with all of you today. Gillen Harrison is the dean of the Monroe College School of Criminal and Social Justice. She's an attorney. She was in private practice and was also a full-time member of the Monroe College faculty. Ms. Harrison works in collaboration with many agencies and organizations, and she supports and works for and advocates for restorative justice, for healthy relationships, to oppose and expose domestic violence and intimate partner violence. She works for the social mobility of first-generation college students and greater access to legal education. She believes in the power of community and service. And one more wonderful qualification, she is a member of the New York City Community Emergency Management Team. Prior to these career focuses, Gillen Harrison worked on Wall Street, where she attained the position of Vice President of Municipal Bond Research at Bear Stearns. Our second panelist is my beloved friend, Maureen Curtis. Maureen is the Vice President of Criminal Justice Programs at Safe Horizon. And Safe Horizon is the city and one of the country's largest human service organizations providing services to crime victims. She's developed and provides oversight for the criminal justice initiatives at Safe Horizons. She has a 30-year history in this field, focusing on victims' rights, particularly in the criminal justice and housing sectors. Maureen is of international status in regard to the achievements of the Crime Victims Assistance Program here in New York City, which has placed domestic violence victim advocates in police precincts throughout our city, a total of 166 advocates citywide. She has focused and developed her practice in trauma-informed services and in client-centered services. Maureen is a licensed social worker and holds a master's degree in public service. So this is our panel. And let me begin with a few questions. Dean Harrison, what is restorative justice? Professor Paul, thank you so much for hosting this very important podcast on domestic violence. It's an honor to be here with you and with Maureen, Maureen Curtis. Restorative justice, two big words. Restorative justice is an approach to justice that aims to get offenders to take responsibility for their actions, 
to understand the harm that they have caused and to give them an opportunity to redeem themselves, but most importantly, to discourage them from causing further harm. Restorative justice has deep roots in Africa and many other indigenous cultures throughout the world where the practices were focused on healing and problem solving. So not necessarily solely focused on the punishment. And these practices were often very inclusive and included the entire community. In the United States, and this is very encouraging, we have at least 45 states that have laws that permit the use of restorative justice in some criminal cases. And typically the programs function in certain ways. So they can be as a form of diversion from the criminal process. It can be allowing offenders, especially first-time offenders or younger offenders, to avoid charges and possibly a conviction. It can be used as a form of alternative sentencing or in some more serious cases as a way to reduce criminal sentences. And depending on the offender, if they have already served their sentence, it could be more of a personal journey, right, for that offender. And I'll touch upon that later regarding a guest that we had, a guest speaker for one of our classes a couple of years ago who had committed a homicide. So it could be from a personal view and standpoint um, that they need to go through this process for themselves. So when we think about restorative justice and some of the primary goals, I think the idea is to bring together the stakeholders, right? The offender, the person that was harmed, the victim, community members in a way that's not adversarial. So we're not inside court because we want to encourage that dialogue, right? We want to encourage dialogue that promotes an environment where the offender could feel comfortable having a space where they can take accountability and also to be able to listen to the victims and what they've gone through as a result of the harm. So, you know, when we look at restorative justice, what I like about it is that it often looks at the ripple effects of the harm to a stakeholder because of a person's criminal act. So, for example, let's take a look at the crime of robbery, right? Basic definition of robbery is taking someone else's property by force or threat of force. So let's say there's a daytime robbery near a school. A woman is pushed to the ground and the robber takes her bag by force. So clearly the woman has been harmed, we can say physically and possibly mentally. She may now experience anxiety or fear as a result of the robbery going out by herself. But then what about others? What about the bystanders? What about those who saw what happened to her? How are they feeling, right? What has happened to their sense of safety and security? Has that been harmed? But what about those who learn about the robbery on the news or social media? What are their thoughts now about violent crime? What are they thinking? Can I be the victim of this type of crime next? And what about law enforcement, right? If there are related increases in robberies in certain areas, they're going to shift their resources. But what strategies are they going to use in certain communities? And will community members feel safer having that presence there or will they be distrustful? So restorative justice takes a look at all of these potential causes of harm to all the stakeholders. And I think that's why it's so effective. But, you know, if we compare the view, the criminal justice model versus the restorative justice model and the different views, you know, criminal justice is in a way a punitive, right, type of system where we assume that people have free will 
and they choose that free will to act and sometimes to act to harm others based on thoughts that they have, right? So we're, we're looking at the actus reus, the voluntary act, and the mens rea, which is the criminal intent. So criminal justice views crime as a violation of the law and the state. Violations create guilt, and justice requires the state to determine blame, guilt, and impose pain, which is punishment. But if we look at restorative justice, the perspective here is that crime is a violation of people and relationships. Violations create obligations, and justice involves victims, offenders, and community members, all in an effort to put things right. Okay, so that's the distinction there between the criminal justice model and the restorative justice model. Thank you. And let me follow up with another question. Are there conflicts between empowering the community and holding domestic violence abusers accountable? I will say sometimes yes and sometimes no. The current systems, primarily the CJ system, does try to empower the community by holding abusers accountable in a punitive way, right? When we're looking at domestic violence and intimate partner violence. And the thinking behind that is, well, if there's enough evidence, if the abuser can be held accountable and, you know, maybe removed from the environment in which he or she is causing harm to their partner, then that is a way of keeping the community safe. But you'll also find that the community, especially certain communities of color, may not necessarily feel empowered when a system that has traditionally marginalized them and oppressed them is, through their perception, weakening the family structure, even one that's deemed abusive, right? So I think collectively we have some questions that we have to ask ourselves and really take a hard look, right? Is there enough cultural sensitivity? Is there enough trauma-informed care training? Is there enough understanding of the impact of poverty, anger, mental illness, substance abuse, racial trauma on domestic violence and intimate partner violence? Is there enough empathy, compassion for the survivor and the survivor's situation with their children? Do survivors feel they're being listened to or rather that they're being told what to do from others who don't really understand the core of their unique circumstances and stories? And if they have reasons to distrust the system, what are we doing to reduce or eliminate some of those barriers? And so I think those are a lot of questions that we really have to try to work together to address in order to continue to help survivors and their families. And, you know, I'll have a story I'll share later, but I know you want to ask Maureen some questions. So, Thank you. Thank you for starting us. Maureen Curtis. Could you tell us a little bit about the domestic violence interdisciplinary practice? What do we mean by that term, interdisciplinary practice? First, let me say thank you for inviting me to participate in this podcast with two of my esteemed colleagues, Dean um, Harrison and Ann Paul. This is really an honor, so thank you so much. So interdisciplinary approach As you mentioned, Anne, the domestic violence movement, I mean, started probably in the 1970s and shortly after into the 1980s, after shelters were created, you know, as as I know, Anne, you know, you know, 50 years, you were there at the beginning, you know, I'm behind you, but 35 years, you know, when, you know, shelters were opening up your home 
to shelter a woman and her children. And then, you know, the various legislation and laws were passed, you know, and probably the one that was a real change in how assistance was provided for victims of domestic violence was in the 1980s when mandatory arrests started happening across the country in states. And that was monumental. Um, And there was research done that showed that, you know, when the police responded to a domestic violence incident and, you know, historically or way in the past, they would, you know, tell the person causing harm to take a walk or, you know, they would try to mediate the situation, that the most powerful intervention was the arrest. So that led to changes that led to practice change, both within police departments as well as prosecutors. And over the years, more people causing harm, primarily men, were arrested and in many cases prosecuted. And what that also led to was interdisciplinary work was the police and the prosecutors and the advocates working together to assist survivors and their families. And, you know, there's not much research out there that shows what types of interventions work, but one intervention that has been shown over the years to be successful was this interdisciplinary approach, that when prosecutors and police and advocates work together, it can make a difference in providing services for victims, as well as, in some cases, uh, reducing domestic violence homicide. What was interesting was when we saw the reduction of overall homicides in our country in the 1990s through the 2000s, to the point you made earlier, Anne, we didn't see the same reduction in domestic violence homicides. Yes, we saw one year they would go down, but then the next year they would go up. And they never dropped significantly like they did in all other homicides. And why is that? You know, if we believe that, you know, the criminal justice system, and many of us wanted to believe that it was the answer, that if you arrested that person who was causing harm and there was prosecution, that that would make a difference in the survivor's life. And I will say, you know, speaking from the eye, I strongly believed in that. I was an advocate working in a police precinct back in the 1980s. I supervised this program for many years, which had advocates working side by side with police officers to provide services to victims of domestic violence after an incident occurred. I also worked in a program that was called the Domestic Violence Accountability Program that worked with, it was men who had been arrested and were now mandated into this program. And if you were to ask me for many years what I thought about mandatory arrest, I would have said, that's the way to go. Arrest the abusive person and prosecute that person. When I was the facilitator in that program, if I were asked about supporting this program, I would say, yes, this program is purely educational. We do not support the men. We don't address, we didn't even recognize that they had any trauma or needed any assistance themselves. It was about just educating them about the history of violence and, you know, holding them accountable to showing up because they were court mandated. And that If there was interdisciplinary work, it was between advocates, prosecutors, police, and batter's intervention programs, which they were called at the time. 
And I believe they were successful. And for many people, although research showed that the batteries intervention programs were not successful, but this interdisciplinary approach did make a difference because when we're working together, the advocate was there speaking on behalf of the survivor. So they were ensuring that the survivor's voice was in that room when we were discussing the case. So if that survivor did not want the arrest or did not want the prosecution, I mean, maybe there would be a choice, but sometimes there wasn't because of the mandatory arrest and in many cases, mandatory prosecution. But the survivor's voice was still heard in that room. And whatever they would want to have happen in terms of ongoing safety planning or services was also communicated through the advocate in that room. And that really made a difference, you know, in terms of really hearing what the survivor wants. And Galen, you said this earlier, what victims want. And that was critical. You know, what do they want? What we also learned about interdisciplinary work was it needed to be expanded out. So we initially, and for many years, as I said, it included prosecutors, advocates, and police, and that was it. Where were the other providers? If it was an elder abuse case, where was the elder justice agency? If the person had issues with their public benefits, where was the representatives from HRA, the Human Resources Administration? If they lived in public housing, where was the representative of New York City Housing Authority or another? So over time, it expanded to include these other entities. And in some cases, they attended every single meeting. And in other cases, they came in as needed, you know, if the client's needs or who the client was, like if they were an elder, so we would involve an elder justice agency, were at the table. And this was not just instrumental and powerful for, you know, the types of interventions and the types of services that could and were available for that survivor and their family. But what I loved about it was that it was a real eye-opener for those at the table. It was a learning experience for those sitting at the table. I'll always remember in one of the early high-risk teams, interdisciplinary teams that we had here in New York City, and it was run at the time by the mayor's office. And we had high-level officials in this meeting. And at the time, if you were potentially eligible for a housing voucher, you needed a police report to support your victimization and an order of protection. And those were difficult to get, you know, because I mean, I'm not going to go into the what you need, but there's a high threshold that has to be met in New York State in order for a crime to be committed. Or at the time, a person who was in an intimate relationship could not walk into family court and petition for an order of protection. So that left out a lot of survivors of domestic violence. And I'll always remember sitting in the meeting with this is a high level person in the city who could not believe that without that order of protection and that police report, that this high risk case that we were discussing in this meeting uh, would not be eligible for housing to get that voucher that she would need to keep herself and her children safe. So in that way, it was powerful because it helps not just that individual survivor, it led to systemic change. Because shortly after that, 
the city now had the power to make changes and say, you no longer need these documents to support your victimization. So that helped hundreds, probably thousands of survivors. So the interdisciplinary approach, you know, helped individual survivors, but it also led to each of us and not just, you know, other entities like, you know, the, the police, we learn about like police policy and what the law is so that if we're with a survivor and the survivor did not want that arrest, but the police were mandated to make that arrest under the law, the advocate could talk with that person about why the police officer made that arrest and how they had no choice so that, yes, the survivor still may not want to pursue the prosecution that comes out of that arrest, but at least they have more of an understanding about why the police officer did that. And they're less likely to blame that police officer for doing something that they had no control over and they had to do it. So that also was powerful because, you know, Gillian, you said earlier that the issue a lot of times with the criminal justice system is the fear and just the tension between communities, primarily communities of color and immigrant communities with police officers. And I think that doing what we can, of course, respecting those who have nothing to do with the criminal justice system, you know, and as much as possible, exploring options such as restorative justice. I never thought I would see the day that we would be talking about restorative justice in domestic violence cases. And we are. And that comes out of listening to survivors say, I don't want to do this. I want to do that. You know, I think back on my career and how many times, because I thought arrest was the best thing. I thought prosecution. I mean, who am I, particularly me as a white woman saying that this is the best? Yeah, maybe it would have been best for me because I would get treated differently by the police, but it's not the best for all, you know, survivors, particularly survivors of color. And I think that that's something that we need to really look at. How can we improve? as we have over the years, looked at the power of the interdisciplinary approach and expanded it. You know, one of the things that I would love to see is having faith-based leaders in these collaborations because their voice, we know that many survivors turn to family or friends first. They often turn to their faith-based leaders, you know, and what role can they play in this interdisciplinary approach so that they also are aware and have the ability to speak on behalf of that survivor, you know, maybe not specifically because of confidentiality, but once again, the education so that we're all learning, if not specifically, but in general, that can help that individual as well as others who may be impacted by violence in the home. Maureen, thank you. And in our remaining moments, perhaps you'll both respond to this question, the Me Too movement. George Floyd Summer 2020, these great movements have promoted the concept of reckoning, of increasing justice and awareness, reckoning, truth. What has that meant in addressing domestic violence? Dean Harrison? Thank you so much, Professor Paul. And I have to say, Maureen, I was spellbound by your your answer in terms of you know, the importance of an interdisciplinary approach, how it's expanded, why it has really increased efficiencies, and how the value of wraparound services hopefully is being viewed. 
by those that need those services, right? Survivors. So, you know, your work throughout this process is just, it's just amazing and very inspiring. So I want to thank you for that. So the Me Too movement, George Floyd, what I love about this country is a spirit of fearlessness and a spirit of candor in the moments when we most need it. And I think as we continue to explore the value of people, of humanity, of women, all of us, it's important to have conversations that are uncomfortable. It's important to shed light on the truth as it applies to all people. And so I think we've had you know, various times in this country's growth and development where movements have come to propel us forward so that we could be more inclusive of our understanding of, you know, what each other's needs are. And quite frankly, what's acceptable and what's not acceptable, right? Behavior and treatment. And, you know, when we think about these more recent movements, I think we should also think about the value of social media (laughs) in promoting the messages, right? So, you know, with the Me Too, you think about Twitter, you know, Instagram, Facebook, and so many women having the courage to finally come out and tell their stories and their truths because they couldn't before because, you know, they had, they were the breadwinners. They had to take care of their families and they suffered in silence, but now they they finally had the momentum. And when you think about George Floyd, where, you know, there's a term in the law where some things sometimes shock our conscience. They're so bad that everybody sees it and everybody says, no, we've gone too far. And that was George Floyd, right? And to me, what I saw was this immense energetic movement of all people, but especially young people coming together of all races, ethnicities, faiths across the world globally and saying, oh no, no more. This has gone a step too far. We're not going to accept this behavior. And so I do love the American spirit of fearlessness and courage even in times when we are uncomfortable. Thank you, Gillen. And Maureen, what is reckoning in terms of addressing domestic violence? Well, I think that reckoning is honestly looking at where we've been, where we are right now, and where we want to go in terms of how we work with survivors of domestic violence particularly Black and Brown and Indigenous survivors of domestic violence. Our agency, about 10 or 12 years ago, started doing work through an anti-racism lens. And it was, I'd say, a turning point for us in 2020 when George Floyd was killed. That really caused us to We had already been looking at not just how we provide to our clients, which are primarily women of color, but also our staff. And for us, the reckoning came in terms of um, looking at, while I'm the vice president of the criminal justice programs, looking at our role within the criminal justice systems. These systems, you know, the child welfare system, the criminal justice, the civil justice system, you know, should we be doing this work? Are we, you know, not hearing our clients and survivors of violence that they 
do not want to be involved with the criminal justice system because of the way that they're treated by police, by prosecutors. You know, we also know that, you know, when once you're involved in the criminal justice system, you know, you, you no longer have choices because now the criminal justice system is taking over. So that there's that power and control that continues on the same even in family court, you know, and, and with the child welfare system. So all of that, you know, so we looked at that and really hard and said, are we doing the right thing? You know, looking at restorative justice in terms of, you know, what does that look like for us? We started a program through ACS where we provide services for the entire family. So for the survivor, the children, as well as the person causing harm, oftentimes the father. And that's something that even five, 10 years ago, we would never even have thought of doing. And once again, you know, so many of our clients are clients of color. And this came out of listening to our clients over the years and recognizing that we need to make some shifts in order to really be providing the services in a meaningful way for our clients. And I will say that, you know, while I know that that many survivors don't want to turn to the criminal justice system, there are still many survivors that choose to, including survivors of color. So our job is to help them once they're involved in that system through our knowledge, through our ability to help navigate these often complicated systems, as well as using our leadership and partnerships with these organizations to help affect change within these systems so that for those who choose, and even those who do not choose, who get caught up in the system. I think the other thing that we also recognize is that the person causing harm, and this really hit home, you know, through our anti-racism work, is not this bad guy, you know, that we often over the years saw this person, you know, and and I know I'm generalizing, you know, that sometimes it could be the woman who is the abusive partner. And that person, the survivor who doesn't want to leave, is not leaving always because they're afraid to leave, but they're not leaving because they love this person. They want this relationship to work. Or if it's family violence, they don't want their son or their grandson or their granddaughter or or daughter to leave. They want to be able to work this out. Once again, this is where restorative justice, mediation could really make a difference in this home. And for years, we closed that door. We said, nope, that is not something that can happen. You know, and we are the ones within the system, often white leaders who are making these decisions. So there's been that reckoning that has happened. And the last thing that I'll say that I think is also critical is we took a look at the impact that these systems and that racism has on our staff, who are mostly staff of color. And, you know, what, because you cannot help somebody if you don't feel that okay yourself. So it's really important that we provide and not just say we're providing that support, but what does that mean? Concretely, emotionally, all of that. And throughout 2022 through the present, we're looking at that and we are listening to our staff and making changes, you know, as much as possible in a meaningful way that will help our staff because the more we do for our staff, the better able they are to do for their clients. 
Helen Harrison, Maureen Curtis, my beloved friends and colleagues, thank you for your honesty, your insight, your courage, your candor, and your enormous careers making the American people safer, more unified, more creative, stronger. And that concludes episode six in the Monroe College True Crime podcast series, Domestic Violence, Interpersonal Violence, and Breaking Cycles. Thank you. Thank you for listening. For more information on future episodes, you can follow along at Facebook at Monroe College, Instagram at Monroe College, Twitter at Monroe College. Have a great week.